The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. A big part of the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is electric cars. I've lost track of how many times we've talked about EVs in one way or another on this show. But in some places, the growing desire for electric cars has also come with growing pains. Hong Kong-based reporter Linda Liu went out to see a strange site that can be found in a number of cities in China. EV graveyards, where unwanted early models are piling up. Hundreds and hundreds of these cars sitting under the sun, gathering dust as far as the eye could see. Later, contributor Willem Marx talks about how Norway, which offers generous tax breaks for EV buyers, is now contending with some unexpected consequences of so many people flocking to buy them. So when you have this big hole in your public finances, because of these incentives, because of these exemptions from tax for EVs, you've seen that hole become problematic and it's become a bit of a political football in Norway. And a city councilman in Oslo, Norway, tells us why, even with more EVs, he thinks cities like his would still be better off with fewer cars, period. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the upsides and downsides of the EV boom. Hey, Linda. Hi, Wes. How are you? I'm all right. I am just fascinated to talk to you about this because your story was about something I didn't even know existed, these EV graveyards. How did you even come up with the idea to write about this? So Chinese media has been reporting this phenomenon since 2019. And we kind of thought maybe, you know, these car companies and government after previous media reports, they would have cleaned them up by now. But actually, as we discovered to our surprise, they are very much still out there. So these are EVs that have been kind of abandoned after usually it's the ride-hailing companies that owned them went bust or they're EVs that have become obsolete uh, because they're usually lower quality, have lower driving ranges. So now that you get better models on the market, people don't want them anymore. And so they've just been abandoned? So when we went to visit a couple of these EV graveyards in Hangzhou City recently, we just saw hundreds and hundreds of these cars sitting under the sun, gathering dust as far as the eye could see. Essentially, they've got weeds growing all around them. There's weeds coming out of their trunks. Some of them still have soft toys or drink bottles left over from their previous drivers. It's all a very kind of desolate picture of abandoned cars. And why were they just left there? I think people don't really know what to do with these cars. The companies that owned them went bankrupt and the government have been trying to clean them up, but the legal ownership of these cars are not clear now. We've read about some of these cars are actually waiting to be auctioned off, but again, it's not clear who should take responsibility for them. 
And why were there so many of these ride-sharing companies that popped up in China and then just went belly up? With EVs, the Chinese government kick-started a boom with giving out millions, if not billions of yuan and subsidies to try to get people interested in these EVs. At that time, the EVs were lower quality, lower driving ranges. Consumers weren't that interested. But the ride-hailing companies were, so they started up to take advantage of the subsidies. So it makes sense why these ride-sharing companies would suddenly pop up if they're getting these government incentives. But who is making all of these cars in China? China had a lot of new EV startups that essentially entered the market after all of the subsidies came on the scene. You've also got existing car makers that started churning out EVs as well on top of gasoline cars. At one stage, there were as many as 500 EV startups. All of them making cars? Not all of them were making cars, but they were definitely trying to get a piece of those subsidies. Recently, after the subsidies dried up, so the government essentially slashed those subsidies from 2019, and last year it ended that program. Why did they do that? I think it's a combination of the government realizing a lot of it's actually gone to waste. And also, China always has kind of a 10-year plan. When did the government start noticing that this was becoming a problem, that all these cars were being abandoned and just left to rot? The kind of abandoned graveyards didn't gain attention until 2019, but the government was aware of subsidy fraud as early as 2016. And what is subsidy fraud? The companies were um, fraudulent claiming subsidies for EVs that they said they were making when they weren't making, you know, EVs that would qualify it. Some companies made just empty chassis of cars that didn't contain any batteries, getting like a generous 8,000 US dollar subsidy for each car that they claimed to have sold. Some companies made EVs that did have batteries, but the batteries didn't fit the standards, so they wouldn't have qualified it, but they still fraudulently claimed them. And then these ride-hailing companies um, that started up, some of them were backed by car makers themselves, so car makers would just easily shift their inventory from themselves to these ride-hailing companies to get those subsidies. All told, how much did China spend on the subsidies to both car makers and these ride-sharing companies? Local media have reported that they estimated something like 9 billion yuan of subsidies were fraudulently claimed. And that comes out to about 1.25 billion U.S. dollars today. One of the things you write in this story is that not only is it just an eyesore to have all these cars stacking up. But it's what you call a missed opportunity. Yes, exactly. Because all of these cars contain uh, metals in their batteries, such as nickel, cobalt, and lithium, that are very much in demand to make new EVs these days. Not to mention, obviously, you've got other components in the car that could be reused. So essentially, they've become what people have called them urban mines that are just waiting to be recycled. And despite all of these cars that went to waste and all the money that went to waste, you write that there was an upside to this huge investment in cars, that it gave a big boost to China's EV industry. Yeah, that was something that surprised me. Essentially, after speaking to analysts about this phenomenon, one of them told me that she thinks 
that is something that was essential to China's journey in EV adoption because without these early stage ride-hailing companies, there wouldn't have been this demand for car companies to keep investing in EV-related technologies. And at the same time, when customers weren't buying them, they still had exposure to EVs through using these ride-hailing companies. They acted as um, an education for customers that EVs were a safe alternative. So what has the government said about these things? What do they say they're going to do with them? We reached out to the Chinese government for the story. Unfortunately, they didn't respond to us. Local media reports have said that Hangzhou governments, where these EV graveyards that we visited were located, said that they were trying to clean them up. But obviously, they're still out there because we just saw them recently. Are there still more cars coming into these graveyards, or are these artifacts from another time that is past? I think there's a possibility that more cars could still end up being abandoned. Hangzhou, the city that we're discussing, essentially released uh, new rules again, saying that EVs that are driven has to be over a certain price range. So that would eliminate a lot of the older, cheaper EVs. So I think as long as Chinese cities continue to adjust their EV standards, you're going to have more cars that will become obsolete. So you could have this generation of great EVs winding up in the graveyard as the new generation comes out and the other ones are just no longer useful. Exactly. And you mentioned earlier that this big lost opportunity of not recycling the batteries and all the precious metals that these cars contain. Do you think that's going to happen? Somebody, it seems, could probably make a lot of money doing that. Yeah, and it's funny because after the story went out, I've had a reader reach out to me that said they deal in industrial assets and could they please be referred to um, whoever owns these EVs because they would very much like to get their hands and try to recycle these cars. But in China, I think um, there is an appetite to recycle them. Again, I think it's a question of who owns these cars and who has the responsibility to take care of them. I think once that's sorted out, these cars could very much be put to reuse again. Linda, you cover China's car industry. When you look at this story, what's the lesson you take away from this? When you use industrial policy to try to basically grow a nascent sector, access and waste is uh, quite an easy thing to happen. You know, other countries like the U.S. are also, you know, doling out subsidies to try to grow the EV sector. I think this is something maybe that people should pay attention to just to make sure that while it's a good thing that you're growing this green space, but also make sure that, you know, there's compliance. People aren't just in there to get the easy money. That is genuine growth that you're trying to help steward. Linda, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Wes, for having me. After the break, what happened when Norway gave citizens big sweeteners to buy EVs? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's go from China to Norway 
Bloomberg Businessweek contributor Willem Marx reports that the government's big push to make EVs attractive has been a huge success. And now that's created a bit of a puzzle, too. Willem, you're writing about Norway's amazing success story with EVs, and they have just a huge number of electric vehicles on the road. They really do. It's by far the most, in terms of per capita EV adoption anywhere in the world, hundreds of thousands of them in a relatively small country. And when somebody in Norway goes to buy a car, they're almost always now buying an electric vehicle. Is that right? Yeah, we looked at uh, the last couple of months and we looked at the averages. It was more than 96% of all new car purchases were either electric vehicles or hybrids. And that was just an astonishing number. And of course, it's not just an accident. The reason that it happened is because Norway really wants people to buy electric cars. Yeah, this has been a, a long time program in Norway. They were moving in this direction really before any other government in the world was thinking about this. Going back to the 1990s, they had some of the earliest tax incentives. And the consequence has been that for people deciding to buy a new car, it's just not made economic sense to buy a car that's not in some way electrically powered because of the level of taxation on hydrocarbon and carbon emitting vehicles. Can you run through some of those numbers? Because that was one of the things that really leaped out at me in your story was just how expensive it is to buy a gasoline-powered car in Norway. So 96%, let's say roughly, new car purchases are electric vehicles. Obviously, that leaves a very small number that are not. But in terms of those that are facing that decision, when they start to look at how much it's going to cost them to buy a emitting vehicle, it's absolutely astronomical. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars more than you would expect. Some of the vehicles going up to well over $100,000 for a not particularly fancy car, just based on the amount of taxation that's being applied. So for instance, we looked at the data and over the past three decades, the EV market's been exempted from what's known as the auto purchase tax. That currently averages more than 27,000 US dollars a car. And that is not forgetting on top of the VAT, the value added tax, which is itself 25%. And so with your combustion vehicle, if that's what you decide to buy, those fees are being based on just a combination of weight and emissions. And therefore, the bigger and the dirtier your car is, you're going to be paying a huge amount more than that. And so Norway has just exempted electric vehicles from all of these additional fees? Yeah, largely over the last few years until very recently. And, and that was kind of the crux of our piece is this fork in the road, if you'll forgive the pun, that the governments had to make to try and figure out how they make this sustainable from a taxation burden distribution perspective for citizens as they get to a point where double digit percentage of their total vehicle fleet for passengers is now electric. Where do you draw the line? And, th and that was the question that we set out to try and answer. And the reason why Norway is really struggling with this is because they're losing a huge amount of tax revenue because all these people are buying EVs, which they wanted them to do. But as a result, they're not getting all the money from those car sales. Governments make a, a huge amount of cash every year from car tax, right? And so when you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of vehicles in larger economies being brought every year, that, that translates into billions of dollars in tax revenue. And in 2022, last year, according to government estimates in Norway, those incentives for EV 
purchases. They ended up costing the National Treasury around $4 billion, the equivalent in tax revenue. And we figured out that was around 2% of the country's entire treasury take for the year. And it's become a bit of a political football in Norway. Why did Norway adopt these incentives so much earlier than a lot of other countries? That is a, a debatable question to answer, and it depends who you ask. Norwegians felt they had a responsibility to try and be at the head of the curve on this adoption of EVs as one of the mechanisms as a country they can adopt to try and get closer to net zero. And because they make huge margins on their oil exports and their production, this is something that as a country, they were perhaps more easily able to access the financing for these kinds of incentives, these exemptions of the taxes on other vehicles. They've ended up with what they wanted. They've seen the numbers of EV purchases rise, as I said, to 96%. And they're at a point now where, in theory, within the next 18 months, cars that emit carbon will no longer be happening, at least for new purchases, anywhere in Norway. And speaking to the dealerships, you know, they're planning for that. The manufacturers, they're planning for that. When you're thinking about buying a new car, of course, you're not just thinking about what's the sticker price. You're also thinking, what's it going to cost me to run? And part of the value proposition that Norway has made for users of electric vehicles is that you will maybe pay less when you first purchase it, but you'll also have lower running costs. You will not have such high fees when you're passing through tolls on major highways or into major cities. You won't pay such high parking fees in major cities. A lot of people use ferries in Norway to get around the country, either to islands or different parts of the mainland. And those then also face much lower fees if you're driving an electric vehicle. There are some other really interesting kind of developments over the last few years around giving apartment owners this so-called right to charge, meaning that if you own a block of flats or you're one of several condo owners in a building, all the other condo owners have to share the cost of introducing new charging infrastructure. So if you're the first EV owner in a block of six apartments, it's not all on you. The other five are forced by law to help underwrite that cost. So you say they're reducing these incentives. Exactly what are they cutting back now? Over the last few decades, there have been different types of tax incentives on vehicle purchases, whether that's the value-added tax or an auto-purchase tax. And these have all been very live debates inside the Norwegian government over the last couple of years. What they've started to do, though, is think about how they can disincentivize people from buying perhaps the larger, heavier maybe even more expensive EVs with a form of essentially progressive taxation so that when you get above a certain value of a car, you will face a tax rate that is not in place lower down that value scale. And so what they're thinking is that if they can increase the taxes on the more expensive vehicles, but maintain some of the exemptions for the cheaper ones, it will allow people further down the socioeconomic ladder to still make this transition to an EV but won't necessarily encourage wealthier people to buy multiple EVs at a time when, frankly, they would like to have less cars overall. How are people in Norway reacting to new taxes and fees on cars that for so many years were an incentive to buy them? One thing it has seemingly incentivized is to have people driving when it's very cheap to get into town. If you maybe live in the suburb, you're incentivized to drive your car because you can park and you don't pay a congestion charge or whatever it might be. They seem to have had enough warning, had enough advance notice on these price changes. There's not been too much outcry. It does seem to have had the impact of 
encouraging people to move faster in some ways. And that's why we've got to this extraordinary 96% number of, of new purchases being EVs and hybrids. Norway is just starting to roll these things out, but you write about Sweden as an example of what happens if you take away these incentives too quickly, because their experience was completely different. Yeah, I was having this conversation with one of the, the CEOs of one of the larger charging network companies, and he and his team were very keen to point out that in Sweden, where they'd ended these subsidies, in their words, too quickly, they saw this drop in demand for EVs because they hadn't maybe got to that point of momentum, that tipping point, whatever you want to call it, where people felt they had no choice but to move along that transition curve. And so people, I think over the course of the first half of this year, there was a 20% drop in private car registrations for EVs in Sweden, which they pointed to as evidence of don't move too quickly and too soon. For places like the U.S. and the U.K. that are at least a few years behind Norway in this transition to EVs, what are the lessons that they should be taken away from Norway's example? I'm an EV owner myself. That's my disclosure. I live in the U.K. And one thing that again and again, the network is not yet there, that people feel 100% confident driving out of their house, their garage, that they will get to where they want to be over long distances without complications or delays. And that's the lesson based on these conversations I had with Norwegians that they really seem to have got right. That is not a consideration for people there. They know that there are sufficiently large and sufficiently widespread charging facilities that that range anxiety you hear so often about is not a problem for them. Willem, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. After the break, how Norway's capital Oslo is trying to quickly adapt to so many new electric cars on its streets. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Ivan Tradel spends a lot of time thinking about this transition from gas cars to EVs. He's a city councilman in Oslo, Norway, and he leads the Transport and Environmental Affairs Committee. Ivan, what is the impact of so many people in the city and really in Norway buying EVs? Well, it's a very important part of our uh, climate uh, efforts here in Norway. Of course, transportation cars is one of the main sources of emissions, and uh, it's uh, had a certain impact on emissions from, from car transportation, but we haven't come that far. It's about uh, 12, 13% of the total uh, amount of cars right now. But for the city, we have a much higher percentage, I think uh, closer to 40% now, and this does make a big difference. You know, it's quieter, it's less polluting. There are many benefits to changing to EVs. And uh, we see that they have become so popular that uh, now it's over 90% of the new car sales. 
And we've been talking about all the incentives that the government gives to people to encourage them to buy EVs. How do people feel about EVs, about switching over from combustion engine cars? I think the kind of the phase where people were uh, skeptical or, or unsure about EVs are way uh, behind us. Uh, there are, have been some starting issues with uh, getting people chargers, uh, having fast charging network, you know, in the whole country. But mainly now EVs are just completely normal. And most people would probably just not to consider buying a fossil fuel car if they buy a new car. Both because there are a lot of, uh, you know, incentives, but also because they are basically just as useful and a bit cheaper. So that question of charging that you mentioned is always the big Achilles heel with getting people to switch over. I imagine you had to deal with that question of getting enough charging stations in Oslo. We have, and we still have issues with that, with parking spaces especially. Um, not everyone in the city, of course, have their own garage or their own house. So there are, you know, incentives. We have spent a lot of money to incentivize, for example, people living in a, uh, um, a city block where you can get chargers in your garage. So, and, and, of course, also the city provides some uh, public chargers. But uh, I think that those are kind of uh, quite manageable. What are some of the kind of unexpected downsides if there weren't any to so many electric vehicles. Like everybody thinks it's going to be great, we're going to switch over to EVs, and yet there's always things you just can't see. The biggest problem I would say is just that an EV is still a car. You know, it's <laughs> there are a lot of cars in the city, we want to reduce the amount, and right now we are in a situation where EVs are so uh, lucrative uh, that it's actually cheaper than, for example, using public transportation. A lot of people might use EVs that might uh, just as well have used a bike or walk to uh, where they're going. So. When we are, have been incentivizing them as much as we have in Norway, we can actually get to the uh, kind of downside where EVs uh, you know, kind of squeeze out the even more environmentally friendly modes of transportation. We are uh, suffering a bit from the success of the EV revolution here in this city, I would say. And I guess it's not even just the question of green fuel versus dirty fossil fuel, but just quality of life. That If you have a city where people walk and ride bikes, it's nicer than if everybody is stuck in traffic. Exactly. And, and, and this is kind of the next frontier, I guess, of the urban transportation debate, because here in Norway, we have kind of had one answer to the environmental issues, and that has been to subsidize a new car for everyone. The battle for space in the city will be the same no matter you know, how you power your vehicle. And uh, I guess that's kind of where we're now. The debate has gone in Oslo. There is almost no opposition to the EV policies, but there are a growing kind of conflict about do we just want to be satisfied with everyone getting an electric car or do we also want people to switch from the car to other modes of transportation that are more efficient and environmentally friendly? Is there any concern that, you know, Oslo looks at some American cities, which of course are just blocked up with cars since there's a, such a huge U.S. car culture and say, yeah, we don't want to be like that. Absolutely. And, you know, we are lucky in Oslo because this city was built before the cars. That's usually not the case for a lot of American cities. So we do have that privilege that a lot of our infrastructure is kind of made uh, before we got the car explosion after the war. We do see that we, uh, we have a better kind of um, starting point. The city has been built around the subway system. We have a very good public transport system. There are more people traveling every day with public uh, transport in this city than with cars. The uh, very cheap uh, availability of electric cars can be a, a threat to that. And this has to do with how we plan our cities, how, where we build new developments, and uh, of course, what we incentivize. 
We want all cars to be electric, but we also want there to be fewer cars. And I think it's very important to be able to reach both those goals. Ivan, thanks for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Michael Falero and Mo Barrow. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.